Mark chapter 3. As advertised, welcome to Q&A night. We have uh, one question tonight, <clears throat> because sometimes questions are just uh, big questions, and they deserve a whole uh, sermon-length answer. Here's a question. What is the unforgivable sin? Referenced in the question was the text, uh, Mark 3, 28 and 29. And then along with that, what is considered blasphemy? So let's just begin by getting the verses before us. This is Mark 3 and verse 28. So we're all on the same page about what we're talking about. This is Mark 3 and verse 28. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So, let me begin by, uh, by telling on myself, this is actually the second time I'm answering this question. Um, I look back in my notes, it was July of 2019, almost three years ago, uh, Q&A, Q&A night number seven, back when I was still numbering them, when they were easy enough to number and remember. Um, we talked about this question, so why are we doing it again? Well, a few reasons. Number one, we're talking about it again because I was asked again. Uh, number two, it's, it's come up in discussions with, with people a number of times since then. Not in a formal question for Q&A night, but just in conversation. Someone asked me, someone just sort of wonders about it. So it's come up other times between then and now. Um, three, it's been three years, and uh, I don't expect everyone to have a photographic memory of every sermon I've ever preached. I gave that up around the time that I stopped remembering what I preached about a month ago. So I don't expect you to remember. And then number four, I want to affirm, I I didn't just cut and paste my previous answer here. That's uh, not what I did. I've done a fresh study, and uh, hopefully I've learned something in the past three years. And I even wonder if if the second ask was sort of a subtle hint that I did still have some learning to do and needed a second crack at it. So we're going to address this question. I want to say it is a very serious question. In the places in the Gospels where Jesus mentions this, <clears throat> quote-unquote, unforgivable sin, um, these are perplexing passages. I have talked to people with godless pasts who, regardless of this passage, worry about God's willingness to forgive and accept them. They have a hard time wrapping their mind around God's grace and how it could possibly apply to them. And then when they find a text like this, they start to get really worried because they're already worried about it in the first place. I know there are people who have loved ones who want nothing to do with God and they pray for their salvation constantly and they worry about the possibility that this passage seems to raise, that it is possible to rebel to an extent that forgiveness is no longer possible. And so that's a concern. Maybe this passage even raises questions in our minds about God himself, calling into question what we thought we knew about him. And so we say, you know, I thought the cross and the gospel was all about how salvation and forgiveness can be extended to all, regardless of their past. And suddenly, we have a passage that calls it into question that maybe actually the gospel can't save everyone. So what do we make of this? So what we're going to do, how I'm going to approach the question, is by asking three questions of my own. I'm going to try to answer this question by asking three questions of my own. The first question is simple enough, and that is, what's this text about? What is Mark 3 about? I want to delve into the passage, see what's happening around this, how it is this even comes up in the first place. Just as a side note, there are parallel passages where Jesus uh, speaks about this same thing in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 32, 
and Luke 12, verses 8 through 12. But we're going to stick in Mark uh, because those passages, I, I don't think, add um, some missing ingredient that we wouldn't have just from studying Mark. And Mark, was, uh, Mark 3 was the passage mentioned in the question, so we're going to stick with that. This is Mark 3. Start with me in verse 22. <clears throat> and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And they called them to, uh, they, he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So this story takes place in a collection of stories in Mark chapter 3 about how different people reacted to Jesus. Um, So you've got in verse 7 of the chapter the thronging crowds who come in to see Jesus. It seems they're there for kind of superficial reasons. They're there for sort of the miracle show. You've got in verse 11 the unclean spirits who come into contact with Jesus as he exercises people of demons who cry out in verse 11, you are the son of God. And he tells them to to pipe down. You've got the apostles in verse 13 who are ready to follow Jesus. That's a good reaction to him. You've got Jesus' own family in verse 21 who think he's out of his mind at this point. And then you've got the scribes in verse 22. I just want to put a peg there. We'll come back to some of that. But Mark is sort of is uh, showing contrast between all the different reactions to Jesus. The arrival of the scribes from Jerusalem in verse 22 suggests um, that Jesus is already starting to attract the attention of the Jewish religious establishment, even at this very early point of his ministry. Uh, The scribes' vocation involves stewarding the very word of God. That's who the scribes were. They were the stewards of the very word of God. They spent their time making copies of the word of God by hand, to us that sort of sounds like busy work, something the teacher made you do when you got in trouble and you have to copy down, you know, I will not, uh, you know, I will not do whatever in class. This is no busy work. Um, These were educated and illiterate men in a time when those skills were very rare and they were seen as experts in the law and in the Old Testament. They, They knew the finer points of the law, to put it this way, they knew the finer points of the law because they had put all those points there. If you had a copy, you had seen the work of a scribe. And it was a very highly respected profession, I think rightly so. <clears throat> um, so these Jewish authorities hear about Jesus' following, and they, they hear about his powers and things like that. They hear, for example, about the exorcisms that have been occurring. Like in verse 11, again Mark 3 and verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. They've heard about all these things of Jesus and all this power, and they come, they come to him on sort of a, a fact-finding mission, although actually it seems they already have their minds made up about him because the first thing they do is level a couple of, of really big slanders against Jesus in verse 22. 
The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. You know, it is interesting what they do not do here, what they do not say. Do they say Jesus doesn't have any power? Do they say he's not really casting out demons at all? Those demon-possessed people were just plants in the audience. Like when the 60 Minutes does an expose on the televangelist faith healers and they discover that they're plants in the audiences. Do they, do they accuse him of that? No. The power Jesus displays is undeniable. They don't try. Instead, what they do is brand Jesus' power as being demon-fueled. They say he's no Messiah, he's no prophet, he is a sorcerer who gets his power from Satan and not God. What this is is really another way of charging him with sorcery. That's what they're really doing here. Sorcery is a, is a crime that is directly condemned in the law of Moses, in the Torah, and it is a capital crime in the law of Moses. And so it's really a, a charge meant to condemn, condemn him. If I might add here as a side note, this charge, Jesus as a sorcerer, uh, seemed to stick in the minds of many because there are some extra-biblical sources, for example, the Babylonian Talmud, a later work, a uh, Jewish work, which said Jesus was killed because he was accused of sorcery. Of course, it's not true, but it, it is interesting to think, oh, that sort of accusation was swirling around and it seemed to, seemed to stick in the minds of many. Well, in verse 23, Jesus answers this charge. You cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons. He answers this charge with some basic logic. Verse 23, he asks, how can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, if what you say is true, if I'm casting out demons by the power of demons, then what, what in the world does that mean? Well, I guess we're in some sort of demonic civil war. That's, that's what's happening here. And Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. And if you're right then Satan is fighting against himself, which should mean that Satan's kingdom is coming apart at the seams. As he says in verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. If, if what you say is true, here's what must be true. A civil war within Satan's own house, and he must be coming undone. But his point is, that's clearly not the case. Satan still does have power. People are still being possessed, like the people... Jesus has been exercising. Satan still has mankind enslaved in sin. I think any, any, any uh, half-witted Jew would recognize that. And so his point is, either this logical absurdity is happening, where Satan is casting out Satan, either that logical absurdity is happening, or your accusation is wrong. Those are really the options, the options here based on, that, based on that condemnation. This is verse 27. But he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. I believe he's picturing here Satan as the strong man. Satan's house, Satan is the strong man, the, the uh, patriarch of his house, which is true. Satan is strong. He dispatches his demons to do his destructive work, and he does, uh, he does wreak destruction. And we also have to say Satan is no fool. Humans are much bigger fools than Satan is. He outwitted man and woman in the garden, and he's been doing it ever since. Satan would never willingly allow himself to be defeated. He is too smart for that. What Jesus is saying in verse 27 is, if Satan is to be defeated, what that means is that someone stronger than him has come. 
If someone is ransacking his house, it means someone stronger than him has come and tied him up and ransacked his house. And Jesus is saying that's exactly what is happening. I am the one who is stronger than Satan. My exorcisms are evidence that I am stronger than Satan and I am actively working to defeat him. The heart of my mission is to confront Satan, to crush Satan, to rescue people from his grip, to tie him up and to rescue people from his grip, to ransack his house and his goods and to do him harm. That's what he's saying he's doing in verse 27. Well, that brings us then to verse 28, to the uh, crucial verses. Truly I say to you, he says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, the scribes, were saying, quote, he has an unclean spirit. First thing you have to recognize is that Jesus' sayings in verses 28 and 29 grow out of this observation in verse 30. The reason Jesus says what he says in verses 28 and 29 is because of what's happening in verse 30. Because the scribes were saying, he, Jesus, has an unclean spirit. So the sin Jesus is talking about here in verse 29, whatever it is, whatever we say it is, at least we say this, it's the one these scribes are on the brink of committing in verse 30. Whatever the sin is, they have committed or they are in danger of committing it based on what happened in verse 30. So, in verse 28, Jesus affirms that all the sins all sins men commit are able to be forgiven. Even, he says, blasphemy in general at the end of the verse, blasphemy in general, blasphemy against God can be forgiven. By the way, the definition of blasphemy, which is part of the question, is uh, to slander God. To slander not just anyone, but to, but to slander God himself. To commit an act of sacrilege to profane that which is holy, to call dirty that which is clean, to call, to call dark that which is light. That's really at the, at the core of what blasphemy is about. And verse 28 says, all sins can be forgiven, including a heinous sin like blasphemy. <clears throat> but verse 29 records a solemn exception to this idea that all sins can be forgiven. Verse 29 records what Jesus calls an unforgivable sin. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So we've inched up, and now we finally come to the phrase the question is about. So let me say a few things. Whatever verse 29 means, it has to be interpreted in light of the context. So generally, blasphemy can be forgiven, verse 28. And blasphemy, by definition, is against God, is, is a sin against God himself. But there is a specific kind of blasphemy, which verse 29 says is against the Holy Spirit. And whatever that means, it's what is happening or, in or, or on the verge of happening in verse 30, when they say Jesus has an unclean spirit. So let me just begin by making a very safe statement about what this passage means, a very conservative statement. We can say this with confidence. In attributing Jesus' miracles to unclean spirits and to Satan, in attributing Jesus' miracles to Satan, the scribes either were committing or were in danger of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's a very conservative thing to say. It doesn't tell you what the sin is. It just says that what they're doing puts them in danger of committing it. So that's, that's the very uh, small step we take. Let's go a little bit further. 
What's going on here? Here's what's happening in this story. Faced with the undeniable power of Jesus, and faced with Jesus' airtight logic that he cannot have exercised this power through the agency of Satan, faced with airtight logic and undeniable power from Jesus, these men still said he has an unclean spirit. So whatever they're doing is clearly not a sin of ignorance where they just didn't have enough information about Jesus. It's not a little slip of the tongue. Whoops, I didn't know that. It's not that sort of thing. What's happening inside of them is a sin of outright willful rebellion where seeing Jesus with their own eyes, seeing his power undeniable in front of their eyes, faced with the, with the, with the un, un, inescapable logic Jesus gives to them, they still call him demonic. They would rather believe a logical absurdity that Satan is fighting against Satan. They would rather believe a logical absurdity than admit that Jesus was telling the truth. Jesus is here to free people from the power of Satan, and here they are calling him Satan. They are deliberately calling light darkness. They are openly saying that a man with God's Holy Spirit actually has an unclean spirit. So here is my crack at what the, quote, unforgivable sin is. It is a defiant rejection of God's efforts to save you. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a defiant rejection of God's efforts to save you, and maybe a little bit more than that. It's a hard-heartedness that deliberately attributes the Holy Spirit's work to an unclean spirit. It is an attitude toward Jesus that says, it doesn't matter what you do, and it doesn't matter what you say, I will not call you Lord. That's what's happening inside the hearts of these scribes. If that is the course of your life, you are committing a blasphemy that will not be forgiven in judgment. There is no hope for the one who willfully rejects the plain revelation of God. Which is why, by the way, I think the Holy Spirit is singled out. Verse 28 talks about blasphemy against God, but verse, verse 29 says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is especially, especially heinous. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit is the revealer of God, is, is principally what the Holy Spirit is up to. And to blaspheme Him is an outright refusal to listen to anything God ever says, to any revelation of God, to just close your ears and your eyes and say, I don't want anything to do with this. If you refuse to even hear the plain truth God is revealing and insist on slandering the divine revealer of it, what Jesus is saying is there's no coming back from that. Now, I am not saying... That someone who has rejected the message and rejected it very strongly, I am not saying they can't repent and come back later. That's not what I'm saying. Isn't that exactly the story of Paul? Someone who rejected Jesus and said and did really awful things against Jesus and repented and came back later? Of course that's Paul. But imagine this, just as a thought experiment. Let's imagine that Paul... On the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute Christians, Jesus appears to him, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Imagine, even when Saul was confronted by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus, imagine if Saul, Paul, still said, you're demonic, to Jesus' face. Imagine if he said that, and he said, I'm still not listening to you. I know who you are, I know what you say is true, but I've got too much to lose and I still want nothing to do with you and I'm going to keep on killing your people. Imagine if Saul said that on the road to Damascus. Now I think we're in the ballpark 
of what's happening in the hearts of these scribes. That's the sort of thing we're dealing with in Mark chapter 3. There can be a resoluteness to our rebellion, a hardness of heart, a calcification of our conscience that Jesus himself personally cannot penetrate. And if you reach that point, what Jesus is saying is, if you reach that point, you're done for. That's the scribe's problem. That's the sin I think there is no coming back from. I'll read you what one, uh, one commentator said. Um, some of these guys just say a lot, uh, say in a few sentences what it takes me a couple paragraphs to say. The expulsion of demons was a sign of the intrusion of the kingdom of God. Yet the scribal accusations against Jesus amount to a denial of the power and the greatness of the Spirit of God. By assigning the action of God to a demonic origin, the scribes betray a perversion of spirit, which in defiance of truth chooses to call light darkness. In this historical context, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. I think that's a pretty good way to put it. It is a conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God, faced with undeniable revelation of who Jesus is and still choose resolutely to go your own way. One more thing before we move on to our second question. Remember those demons we pointed out back in verse 11? Read verse 11 again with me. This is just in a uh, narrative describing all the works Jesus did among the crowds who thronged about him. And verse 11 says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And now I want you to listen again to what those scribes were saying in verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. So, so get this straight. The demons confess Jesus as the Son of God, while these quote-unquote men of God are calling him a demon. So the demons call him the Son of God, and the men of God call him a demon, or Beelzebul. This is one of those rare occasions when you should side with the demons. They speak more truthfully about him. Can you see how Mark draws our attention to the absurdity of the situation and the perversity of the scribes' hearts? They have less sense than the demons. That's what he's saying. The demons know who they're dealing with, and they still, they still are against him. These men can't even admit who Jesus is. That's how, that's how perverse their hearts are. So that's my wrestling with the text and my, uh, my shot at an answer. I'm going to go a little bit different direction. Think about this sort of big picture. I want to ask the question, should I be worried? Should I be worried that I have committed an unforgivable sin, that, that there's no coming back for me? Should I be worried that I am guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? My first answer is, probably not. You, I'm talking to you in this audience this evening, you should probably not be worried. I want to tell you, first of all, why you probably should not be worried. Um, I've, I've heard this said a number of times about this passage, and I tend to agree. And that is, if you are worried that you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, if you're worried you committed the unforgivable sin, then you probably have not. It's not the sort of thing we do through a few idle words. It's not the sort of thing we do by accident. We don't have an accidental slip of the tongue and say, whoops, unforgivable sin, that's it for me. It's not the sort of thing we're talking about. I remind you again, both Peter and Paul do things far more serious than just say some negative things about Jesus. Peter denies Jesus 
and Paul persecutes Jesus. That's pretty bad stuff. And both Peter and Paul are forgiven. Both Peter and Paul preach forgiveness more powerfully than almost anyone. I want you to turn with you to 1 Timothy 1. There's an interesting passage to think about in light of this. 1 Timothy 1. Paul writes here autobiographically. He describes himself, his past, and uh, in his heart. This is 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly, here's an interesting word, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul calls himself a blasphemer, an insolent opponent. And, and in his blaspheming days, he was a member of the same Jewish elite that Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 3. He is a, a Pharisee. He treated, Paul treated as wretched and backwards the gospel and the people of God. If I can even push, push the envelope a little more, I even suspect, had you asked Paul in his persecuting days, had you asked Paul whether Jesus was of God or was of Satan, I even suspect he might have answered Satan. But he was not so far gone in his blasphemy that he couldn't be rescued. When he was finally confronted with undeniable revelation of Jesus, he was leveled. His heart was not so hard that it couldn't recognize the revelation of God standing in front of him, unlike the scribes in Mark chapter 3. So Mark 3.28 says blasphemy can be forgiven. Paul's blasphemy was forgiven. But there is a specific kind of blasphemy, a kind of blasphemy that comes from a settled disposition, a willful and obstinate rebellion against the clear revelation of God's spirit. This is not a momentary lapse. This is a state of heart that we reach with great effort and great stubbornness. And so I would say to anyone who chose to come here this evening with just halfway good intentions, I would say to anyone who came here this evening with just halfway good intentions, you need not worry that you have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you why you probably should worry at least a little bit about this. So, I don't want to pretend, even as I say all of that, I don't want to pretend that this is so extraordinary, it's impossible for anyone to reach this state. Jesus warned about this to actual people who either already reached this state or were in danger of doing so. And I have no doubt that there have been people ever since who have reached this state. Now, while the rest of the New Testament doesn't explicitly refer to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, there's not some index of all the passages that talk about this specific sin. It's not a phrase that seems to be used over and over again. The New Testament does dwell on the processes of heart that get you to this state and warns us about traveling that path, even just a little bit. Let me show you two passages that I think we need to be concerned about. This is Romans chapter 1. is one of those passages, Romans chapter 1. 
second half of Romans 1 diagnoses the depravity of the pagan world. The chapter reads like a, like a downward spiral. Really, I mean, when you think of a spiral in this chapter, you should think of the water going down a toilet bowl. That's the sort of thing that's happening here. The sin just gets worse and worse. The people grow more and more callous toward the God who made them. And there's this ominous phrase that's used several times as they go further and further down the toilet bowl. This is Romans 1 and verse 21. See if you can pick up on this phrase in a few verses that has this ominous tone about it. Romans 1 and verse 21. Although they knew God,